You are listening to The Concierge on Monocle Radio. Coming up on today's programme, we shine a sunny light on the secret spots of Basel and put your questions to our concierge service. It's then to Portofino as we hike and dine on the Ligurian coast. I've done the fabulous five-kilometre hike from Portofino, which you can do in around an hour and a half. It's challenging in parts, but there's wonderful, rewarding viewing platforms the whole way across. Max Anior, co-founder and CEO of The Collectionist, is this week's guest on our travel interrogator. We'll bring you the latest aviation news, and then it's to Rio to celebrate 100 years of the Copacabana Palace. But what I liked about it is how Brazilian it felt, from the crisp lemongrass smell at the lobby to the discreet paintings of nature in the room. And there are 239 of them. That is all coming up on The Concierge in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome to The Concierge on Monocle Radio. I'm Robert Bounds. And this week, we start the show in Basel, where this month we see the return of warm weather and springtime tourism and one of the world's most important circus festivals and fantasy Basel, the Swiss Comic Con. But maybe they're just warming up for Art Basel, the daddy of the art fairs, which will be back in town in June, of course. There's miles more on offer in Basel. So for the very best of the city, we're joined by Domonkos Kikeshi, concierge and guest relation manager at the Grand Hotel Le Trois in the fine city of Basel. And Dom, it's wonderful to have you on the programme. Does it feel like springtime in Basel? Are you having an influx of visitors looking for history and wonderful food and culture already? It's actually the perfect timing. It's just great weather in Basel. 25 degrees today, the sun is out, so everybody's in a good mood. Yes, certainly spring has arrived. That's beautiful. So basically what you're doing is you're painting a picture for us where you're saying that you are suited and booted for work. But as soon as you take off the tie, it's shorts on and you're getting dangerously close to jumping in the Rhine, Dom. Are we right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So we ask all our guests at the top of this programme to tell us where their passport was last stamped. Where have you just come back from? The last stamp I got, it was in Istanbul, Turkey. And it was in March where I met uh, 500 different concierge colleagues from all over the world. So basically, that was the spot we discussed all the hidden stories and the techniques what we used to like make our guests happy. And it was so nice to meet everybody again after three years break because of the happenings in the last years. So it was a really, really nice get together again. It sounds wonderful. So let's paint a little. Let's take us back to Basel, Dom. What are most visitors to Basel coming for? There's obviously, it's a deeply historic town. There's the beautiful river, the Rhine, wonderful restaurants and architecture and art galleries. I hope I haven't taken the words out of your mouth there. But is it a very sort of general purpose vacation spot for people? And is it is it Americans? Is it Germans just coming over the border? Who are you seeing most of in the city of Basel? Basically, Basel maybe the most popular or most important thing is the pharmaceutical companies like Rost and Novartis and all the side business to these guys. And therefore, many Americans come for business. And beside that, it's a really important art, uh, cultural city. We have 40 museums, so many people come because of the art, not only because of Art Basel, but it's not a coincidence that Art Basel is in 
basically Basel. It was invented and um, started by Mr. Baylor, who was the founder of the Foundation Baylor, the most important museum in town. There is also, because of the Americans, there's a river cruise between Basel and Amsterdam on the Rhine River. So that's also a major point why so many Americans come to the city. And there's something about Basel which seems super unspoilt. It's quite a broad, large place, but it's got a sort of small town vibe about it. And I mean that in a really good way. It's very, it's hilly and higgledy-piggledy and looks like something perhaps from a Miyazaki, a Hayao Miyazaki film. (laughs) It's very old world Europe and very beautiful, but it keeps its small town charm. How do you think it does that? And, And what are the spots for you that instill that in guests? Basically, the secret of the town, I would say, is like it's not a tourist hotspot. It's like a hidden treasure, kind of, because all these wonderful and rich museums on one side. And there are some local, like, nice stores beside the main brands. I wouldn't necessarily say the city for shopping, but all these small, like, hidden things. For example, like, as you said, this hilly side of the town, the, the historic old town. And the beautiful energy caused by the river, it's just fascinating. And I'm actually very happy when I can keep my guests in town and they don't want to discover other cities in Switzerland. You know, the typical tourists, let's discover as many cities as we can. But you can actually spend multiple days in Basel and not get bored, you know. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful place. I was lucky to go for years to Art Basel. And yeah, it's a magical place, whether the fair is in town or not, so to speak. Um, okay, for Dom, sure. so I'm going to uh, put you on the spot. I'm uh, standing in front of you at the concierge desk at Les Trois Rois. And I'd like to know a couple of sort of classic, uh, perhaps restaurants in the city that are still worth going to that have retained their power and their kind of Michelin-starred pull, perhaps, and a couple of new upstarts that you're very excited about and are keen to to push Basel visitors towards. Absolutely. I am lucky enough and honoured to work in the hotel, the Grand Hotel Le Trois because we have a three Michelin-star restaurant, just actually three steps away from my desk. That's uh, that's fatal. I'm... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's amazing. That's why you're going for a swim in the Rhine every morning. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. The name is Cheval Blanc with the lead of uh, Peter Knogel. And there are two two two-star restaurants in town. One is by Tanya Granditz, a restaurant Stuki on one of the hilly sides of Basel. And the new two-star restaurant would be The Roots, my personal favorite, actually, which is also along the Rhine. And they are working with a lot of vegetables. So they have some entries where they just present almost 30 different kinds of vegetables, which is like amazing. If you want to go simple, my personal favorite would be Löwenzorn in the historic old town with the beautiful courtyard. And just you can enjoy some steaks or some rusty, as you call it in Switzerland. And it has a nice old vibe. You can enjoy it simply. I like a vibe that matches my Rushdie, old school. I think that sounds that sounds great, Dom. And uh, for anything with a little bit of a lighter touch, maybe someone wants a salad, someone wants something green for lunch, where would you point them in the direction of? And don't say Zurich. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Basically, you can enjoy, enjoy. There is a special place, which is my personal favourite. It's a bit uh, Basel, it is 
mostly, but you can take like a bicycle ride for like 10 minutes. It's called Aktiemühle, and they are basically only open for lunch, and they just set up like beautiful uh, lunch menus. It has a beautiful charm, I would say. It was it used to be an old house, which was generating like electricity, and they just changed it to a restaurant, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating kitchen, what they have. And because of the evening, other events, what they have, they are just doing uh, some lunch, lunch menus. Well, thank you so much for um, letting us dip inside your own little black book, Dom, in Basel. It's wonderful. But yes, now it is time to open our own little black book here on The Concierge. It's the part of the programme where we lean on our deep travel expertise and look to our correspondents around the globe to answer your questions. So the desk is open for business. And first up on the line from London is Karen. Karen, lovely to have you on the programme. So what, Karen, is your question? Okay, Uh, my partner and I have booked a short break in Porto in a week or two's time, and we're hoping to get some tips for places to visit, wander around, eat and drink, apart from the obvious port houses. We're keen to visit smaller, less visited, less obvious places. Perfect. Well, thanks, Karen. And here, with a solution to that specific problem, is Monocle's correspondent who's fresh back from Porto, Ivan Cavallo. Whether you are in Porto for a wine fair, meetings, or just sightseeing, Portugal's second city serves up an enticing menu. For starters, secure a room at the small boutique hotel Rosa et al. in Rua do Rosario. Run by siblings Emmanuel and Patricia Souza, guests are treated to sumptuous meals. On Sundays, they even do brunch and an afternoon roast. Be sure to visit their store, Early Made, next door, for niche fashion labels that produce in Portugal. After, explore the local neighborhood, Cedo Feita, and venture to the clothing store of Daily Day, a brand selling well-made casual items for men and women. Should you feel peckish after clothes shopping, pop into Taberna dos Mercadores, a cozy 18-seat restaurant that does impeccable dishes, including the sea bass cooked in salt. Resume your retail therapy by dropping in at Chocotoria Ecuador, an artisanal bean-to-bar producer that has several shops in Porto. Chocolates are made at its small factory in the Bonfim district, and cacao is sourced from San Tomé and Principe. Continue exploring locally made items at the Klaus Porto flagship store in Rua das Flores to try their handcrafted soaps in exquisite vintage packaging. Take a break from the shops with a trip to the Palacio de Bolsa that celebrates the city's commercial past. Visit the majestic Arab Room with stunning ceiling and walls done in the Moorish revival style. For a pick-me-up after the Bolsa, walk a few steps to Prova Wine Bar where you are likely to bump into a winemaker or importer chatting about Portugal's rich assortment of indigenous grape varietals. For dinner, book nearby at Elemento in Rua do Amada, where chef and owner Ricardo Diaz Ferreira cooks meat and fish to perfection over an open wood fire. For superb seafood, head to the Porto suburb of Matosinhos. Here, hundreds of eateries cater to clients in search of the freshest catch. O Gaveto is a must-stop with its elegant wood paneling and menu of shellfish and traditional fish plates. For a lazy Sunday, the Seravs Museum and Park will satisfy those in need of a culture fix with nature. Pair it with a family-style lunch at traditional eatery Ruggerio do Redondo. Well, thanks, Ivan. That was a wonderful rundown on Porto. And Karen, down the road in London, 
You might need to spend a little bit more time. It sounds important. <laughs> yeah, we went belt and braces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, yeah, it sounds good. Nice, specific recommendations there, which is always good. Yeah, exactly. I think Ivan's list there is, is wonderful. Um, so, Karen, thank you very much for tuning into the concierge and indeed for your question. And bon voyage to Porto next week. And next, we have Joanna from Poland. I'm traveling to Amsterdam for the first time in a few weeks, and I will only be there for the weekend except for the Rijks Museum and Verber exhibition that I obviously already have on my list, and are actually the reason that I'm going there. I was wondering what else should I see so I get the essence of the city, but at the same time don't fall into any tourist traps. Thank you. And straight out of the city of Amsterdam, here is Monocle's Charlotte McDonald Gibson. Hi, Joanna. First of all, congratulations on snagging the Vermeer ticket. The exhibition is indeed a gem. But you're right, the crowds in Amsterdam can be overbearing, but it is possible to escape, especially if you base yourself away from the central tourist traps. One great area is De Pipe, known as the Latin Quarter of Amsterdam. It's full of excellent bars and restaurants. I can recommend Uff for brunch and Café Garon for dinner, and smarter art galleries and cultural venues. And it's walking distance to the Rijksmuseum. Seeing as you'll be in Museum Plein, it would be remiss not to drop by the Van Gogh Museum. The space is in need of modernisation, but you can't doubt the power of the collection. Another way to escape the modern ills of Amsterdam is to step back in time, and a number of the old canal-side houses offer that experience. There is Rembrandt's house, the Our Lord in the Attic Museum, or the marvellous Museum Van Loon, complete with a hidden garden and luxurious interiors built on the profits of the Dutch East India Company traders. It is currently hosting a timely exhibition about the role of slavery in building the Van Loon fortune, so now is a great time to drop by. And I would recommend finishing a day by catching a performance at the Dutch National Opera and Ballet, a world-class company with a huge and varied repertoire and an enviable terrace, where, if you're lucky enough to get a clear day in Amsterdam, you can enjoy views of the light on the water over a much-deserved sundowner. OK, thank you very much to Charlotte and indeed for Joanna from Poland for her question. And if you have a question for the concierge, do get in touch. Send your questions to concierge at monocle.com. Next up, the lowdown is Italian, Ligurian and Porto Fine and Dandy. This week's lowdown is Portofino, the coastal destination on everyone's must-visit, must-seen to a visited list. But there is much more than meets the eye for those weekenders heading to the world-famous harbour. And we sent Monocle's deputy head of radio and concierge producer, Tom Webb, who sent us this report. Famous for its unique beauty combining Mediterranean nature with one of the most picturesque harbours on the Italian coast. Surrounded by its iconic, brightly coloured pastel buildings, Portofino is the perfect spring and autumn time destination. But its real beauty lies in the undiscovered gems in the surrounding areas. The first spot is around the coast to the neighbouring San Frutioso village. Despite being a very sleepy little fishing village, it's incredibly choppy today. You can probably hear the huge swell 
coming into the harbour. There's only two ways to get here, by boat, which has just pulled in now, which is a little bit too rough for me, which is why I've done the fabulous five kilometer hike from Portofino, which you can do in around an hour and a half. It's challenging in parts, but there's wonderful, rewarding viewing platforms the whole way across. On your hike back, the footpath passes the unmissable, brand new Osteria dei Copelli, nestled in the hills above Portofino. You're seeing our favorite part from Portofino, the view that the locals prefer when they have a day off and when they can just go and have a quiet space away from the busy and the crowdedness of the Piazzetta. For us, this is a little heaven on earth. Tatiana Viacava, the sixth generation in the family-owned eco-farm, invited me for lunch. The Osteria dei Copelli is a quite particular place. We open with a one-table-only setting. So what we do is we have one reservation for lunch or for dinner, and we work with a seasonal menu that changes almost every two weeks. We try to really focus on our vegetables and everything that comes from our garden and our produce and really create a unique seasonal experience in Portofino. Once nestled down in the spectacular gardens, the chef Alessio Trezzanini presented the menu. We start with the amuse-bouche, so with the entree, which is a vegetable pie with our veggie from the garden. Then we have a starter, which is a velouté with some fermenting on top, and the velouté is leek and potato. Then we have a first course, which is pasta. So it's a stuffed pasta with herbs inside and spinach, chard, and a pesto, which is a broccoli pesto. Then we have and some fermenting, which are red onions. Then we have a cauliflower as main. So it's a cauliflower stick with um, still fermenting, so red cabbage and white cabbage. Some bits and bobs, so veggie like cavolo romanesco. And a reduction of the cooking liquid from the cauliflower, which is low cooked. Then we have a pre-dessert, which is burrata and pear. And then we have a dessert, which is a basil tart and white chocolate lemon. Further in the foothills are the vineyards that surround Portofino, home to La Portofinese's sommelier, Marta Nicolai. Vermentino is a local variety of Italy and is one of the 300 varieties that we have here. In particular, I'm talking about the Liguria region. Otherwise, Vermentino can be cultivated also in Sardinia and Tuscany. Of course, here we have a particular microclimate, an important influence from the seaside and the surroundings that are mainly Mediterranean flora. So this kind of variety has a really strong minerality and a salinity that is given by the sea influence. The wine is well balanced and uh, of course uh, the aromatic herbs influences the aroma of this wine. So of course this wine has to be tasted uh, here in Portofino to really understand uh, what uh, you are tasting. To end the day, Tatiana left me with a few more recommendations off the beaten track. If you stay at the hillside, you can go to the Mulino de Gasseta, where we have our hop yards. You can also visit our eco farm, where we have our wine and our beehives. Or down by the port, we have Ucaban, which is a brand new opening. It's a wine bar shaped as a sailing boat. Or, of course, the lighthouse, which is an unmissable spot when you visit Portofino. 
Thanks, Tom. Next up on The Concierge, it is The Travel Interrogator. Max Anior, co-founder and CEO of Le Collectionist, is this week's interrogatee on The Travel Interrogator. Max swung by Monocle Radio's London studios to give us some intelligence on the luxury villa rental market, of which Le Collectionist is one of the top brands, offering some really mouth-watering homes. Le Collectionist is a European leading platform for luxury property rental with also all the services you can add to it so for any stay we can book the same property i can go with my husband daughter and some friends so have a nanny a chef and you can go with all your party friends same villa in ibiza and you have a different state so the idea is really we're only setting up the decor and handling all the logistics so that you leave the best of the moment really like at its fullest level we operate in 30 destinations, 10 countries, especially Europe, but also a bit far away destinations like Cape Town, Tots and Caicos, Morocco. We do believe that local people do it better, so they are better than us to find the best properties, the best destinations, the local tips, the best restaurants, the best local people on site. One of my former co-founders renting a place on Airbnb in Barcelona, and when he arrived, it was like a VAC wasn't working, there was no option to do like grocery shopping, there were no activities or experiences that was proposed, but that was also maybe like 12 years ago, so it evolved in the meantime. But uh, it was like, okay, so on the market, there's a segment that is not addressed, especially for the owners, because they want to be taken care of and they don't want to leave the properties on their own, they don't want to welcome the guests on their own. So it was more so to support the owners. And of course, when you're a guest, to under logistics from A to Z. So it's exactly the opposite of Airbnb because Airbnb is an amazing company proposing a tool to be able to book your flat in London, if, even if I don't know you. Us, the okay, Chinese, we are an intermediary between two people to be sure that both of them, both our clients, are taken care of and they can just enjoy the fullest, the holidays. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. My parents used to live there. I'm from Brittany, from Brest, so really like far, far west. And we had a summer house also in Greece, in Kalimnos, which is like a very, very small island and it's called like the sponge island where you get like natural sponges. And we're living between like Saudi Arabia, Greece and Asia also. We're going since it was like halfway. So we're going to Asia a lot, especially in Thailand. So I guess it has always been something for me. And after when I started to work, I started to work in Hong Kong, then London, then New York, and I came back to Paris. I always like all my friends, especially now with locations, it's worse, but they always ask me, oh, I'm going to Turkey. Where should I go? It's always a patient about travel. And you see that in the travel industry, when you discuss with uh, other people, it could be like uh, hotels or even uh, airlines company, like it's something that is in your bones. And yes, I grew up being abroad and discovering uh, all the time. I think that moving for a few months is the best way to discover a destination and to become a local. I would go to Athens. I've been there like a few times last year because we acquired a company over there. And I really think that it's a new cool place to be. I love it. I think it's like all cities by the sea, there's an, an amazing energy. And also I would love to discover Athens 
really off season going to these islands like also Idra, Spetsetska, all the ones that are really close to Athens, because it's really the weekend, you know, destinations for Athenian people. I think at the end, let's not be judgmental. Go to Saint-Tropez, be a bit bling, open this bottle of champagne like Gigi. After, go to uh, Odinis, which is like a fisherman place in Comporta. And I think both experiences are pretty cool. It's just like you have to be in the mood for it. Merci, Max. That was Max Anior, co-founder and CEO of Le Collectionist. And do stay with us as we bring you the latest aviation news. Just like the Monocle team, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences. Allianz Partners' reputation for excellence and the continuous drive to innovate means the business is uniquely equipped to accompany its partners and customers with their ever-changing travel needs. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. Allianz Partners. Get the most out of your experience with peace of mind. It is time now for a roundup of the biggest stories from the world of aviation. And Murdo Morrison, who's the head of strategic content at Flight Global, is on the line and he joins me now. Murdo, lovely to have your uh, lovely to have your voice on the concierge. Welcome to it. And first of all, two sort of regional foes are joining forces in the Middle East. Talk us through this airline story. Yeah, this is Emirates and Etihad tying up. Now they're not merging, they're not coming together, but they're coming together in a in a sort of uh, what they call a partnership to work together to not quite code share, but offer flights on each other's airlines. It's all a, an attempt by both these airlines, who are both based in the UAE, of course, to attract more tourists, especially from Europe and from China, into the UAE. But what's very interesting about it is that Etihad and Emirates have really, since 2003, when Etihad was set up, really been if not foes, certainly commercial rivals. Um, you know, Etihad was very much set up as a response to the success of Emirates down the road in Dubai. Etihad, the Abu Dhabi flag carrier, they call themselves the flag carrier of the UAE. And Sir Tim Clark, who's the chief executive of Emirates, is saying this is a strong foundation to develop further opportunities. So it's interesting to see where this will go. Will it lead to closer cooperation between these two carriers? Will it lead potentially to a merger sometime down the line? Well, that's it's a sort of mouthwatering prospect for kind of aviation news watchers, I suppose, that one. And neither, I suppose, at a brand level are ever really the bridesmaid, are they, in this? If not marriage, then partnership. That's an interesting one, Murdo. And we all know that people are back flying again, but there are supply chain problems. And on a specific item of kit that is fairly important for a happy traveller, um, where are we going with this? This is the, the aircraft seat. So uh, your journey would be a little bit uncomfortable were it not for the aircraft seat manufacturers. Now, of course, if you, if you go back two years, we were just coming out of COVID. No one really saw the recovery in the airline market coming as quickly as it has and I think this, of course, as we're, most of us who travel are well aware of, caused a lot of problems last year with uh, 
congestion, chaos at certain airports, lots of cancelled flights because the industry couldn't really cope with the demand. Now, that was the airlines and the airports. But the problem also was sort of further back, if you like, to the manufacturing industry and the supply chain where airlines are now not getting aircraft that they've ordered on time. And it all goes back down towards, you know, problems with the engine suppliers. In the latest case with Airbus, problems with seats on wide bodies. Obviously, if the seats don't arrive, the rest of the aircraft could be ready to be delivered. But if the seats aren't there, the aircraft can't be delivered. So Airbus's chief executive was warning in the last few days that, uh, you know, a lot of their wide body deliveries will be backloaded, as, as he called it, to the second half of the year. So a lot of the aircraft that should have been delivered in the first half will now be delivered in the second half. Now, that's probably with his fingers crossed because there's probably no guarantee of that either. And uh, Guillaume Fauri also said that the A350, which is obviously Airbus's flagship biggest and flagship wide body now that the A380 is no longer made, that the delivery situation was weak. So both Airbus and Boeing are having real problems at the moment getting aircraft delivered to customers on time. Murdo Morrison from Flight Global, thank you very much indeed. Next up, we're off to Rio. This year, the world-famous Copacabana Palace, the most celebrated hotel in Rio, is celebrating 100 years of open doors. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Monocle's senior correspondent, spent the night to help the institution celebrate its centenary year. Another tough gig. Ah, a friend recently told me that every single time I mention the beautiful city, I speak in this slightly dreamy tone. I was born in Sao Paulo, but Rio has this charm and charisma that even I, an avid promoter of my hometown, have to admit. And it was in Rio that I had one of the best days in my life, at the Copacabana Palace, located in one of the most iconic strips of sand in the world. The hotel is known as the Grand Dame of Rio de Janeiro. It is undoubtedly an icon of Brazilian glamour. The hotel is celebrating its centenary this year and remains connected to Rio's party scene with legendary carnival galas and starry guests from European royalty to Barack Obama. All the stars have stayed there at some point. The hotel was even the backdrop of a 1933 Hollywood musical featuring Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. But what I liked about it is how Brazilian it felt, from the crisp lemongrass smell at the lobby to the discreet paintings of nature in the room, and there are 239 of them. Most furniture in the Art Deco Hotel is made from Brazilian teak and mahogany wood. The breakfast is quite simply the best one I had in my whole life. The variety of fruit, cakes and Brazilian cheese bread, pão de queijo, was just incredible. Unlike those hotels with healthy breakfasts containing stale granola and bad avocado. The quality of the service impressed as well. I remember arriving from an early flight from Sao Paulo at 8am and just wanted to leave my bags at the reception area 
But to my surprise, my room was ready. No fuss. So rare these days. Can't wait to go back and celebrate a hundred years of this magical hotel. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. That's it for today's programme. Thanks to our special guest, Domonkos Kekishi from Le Trois-Rois in Basel. And The Concierge was produced by Tom Webb, researched by Monica Lillis, and our studio manager was Callum McLean. If you have a question for The Concierge, do drop us an email on concierge at monocle.com. And join us next time when The Concierge decamps to Tokyo, from where we'll bring you a very special episode on Japan. Until then, I've been Robert Bound. Thank you for tuning in. And very happy travels.